0: So Let me welcome you into week number six, week six of our uh, uh, current series, Seven Strong. Uh, This is an eight-week series, so we've got today and then two more Sundays to follow where we're thinking about this idea of seven strong overcoming high tension. Let me ask you a question, just a quick survey. If you would rather be strong than weak, Would you shout amen? Amen. Wouldn't you? I mean, who, who would say, no, thank you, I would prefer weakness to strength? Nobody would. We all would prefer to be strong rather than weak. And so here's what we're learning in these weeks together is that there are some essential elements, some key characteristics or qualities that need to be present in our lives if we're gonna be strong and able to bear up under the weights and the burdens and the tensions and the pressures of life. This is week six and so we've already considered several of them, four in fact, that we've thought about uh, over the last few weeks. Let me remind you of them. If you've missed one or more, you can write them down. They're gonna be on one screen so get them quickly. Number one was endurance. We talked about the fact that we need to live with endurance. We've learned about having a gracious spirit. We saw that from Esther. We learned about integrity. Strength requires integrity. And then last Sunday we talked about courage, Uh, endurance, grace, integrity, and courage. And all four of these qualities that we've considered so far we have learned from three people. Three people, Mordecai, Esther, and then Zerubbabel. Get them in the right order. We started with Zerubbabel and then Mordecai and then Esther. Beginning today, we're going to move toward completing, rounding out these seven by considering the final three. And as we do that, we're going to be moving from uh, Zerubbabel, Mordecai, and Esther, and we're going to be studying two more people uh, in the Old Testament two people, two men, Ezra and Nehemiah. And these two men, Nehemiah and Esther, uh, Ezra, arrive on the scene. About a generation, just to sort of give you a a time stamp, they arrive on the scene about a generation following uh, Zerubbabel and Mordecai and Esther. About 50 to maybe 70 uh, years after Zerubbabel, Mordecai, and Esther. Now, when you talk about Nehemiah and Ezra, you should always talk about them like that. I mean, Nehemiah and Ezra you should consider them together. And the reasons that we should consider them together is because they worked together in the city of Jerusalem. Their lifetimes and their work in Jerusalem overlapped. Nehemiah, we think, arrived first in Jerusalem, and not too many years later, Ezra came. And the reforms that these two men brought To Jerusalem, and the work that they led in Jerusalem was vitally important and they dovetailed beautifully together. Nehemiah overseeing the rebuilding of the walls of Jerusalem, and Ezra overseeing the rebuilding of the lives in Jerusalem, the spiritual lives in Jerusalem. In fact, their work is so intertwined, so interconnected, that the Hebrew Bible actually. Combines them as one book. So if you had a Hebrew copy of our Old Testament, you wouldn't have, as you do in our Bible, the book of Ezra and then the book of Nehemiah. You would have one book, the book of Ezra and Nehemiah. That's how connected their two uh, lives and ministries are. And here's the thing their lives, their ministries were so important that when they worked together in Jerusalem, their their work combined together to formulate or to create a thriving and healthy and vibrant Jewish community within the city of Jerusalem and the surrounding area let me remind you because i don't want to make i, I don't want to assume that all of you are really aware of what had happened in jerusalem Previous to the things that we've been studying. I know we talked about it six weeks ago, but for some of you, maybe you are not familiar with it. Uh, Most of us uh, should be aware of the fact that around the year, 600 B.C., the Jewish community in Israel was destroyed, They'd been there for thousands of years. This was the land that God had given to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. They had established their, their nation there. They had, uh, King David conquered the Jebusite city, uh, the mountaintop of Moriah. They built the city of Jerusalem there. Solomon had built the beautiful temple of God there. It was the heart of the Jewish nation in the world, right there centered in Jerusalem and in the land of Israel. But under the, the assault of King Nebuchadnezzar, who was the Babylonian ruler, he destroyed that Jewish community, really the nation. So he destroyed Jerusalem, he destroyed the city, he destroyed the temple, he murdered many of the inhabitants, and he, and he drove the survivors out throughout his empire. So literally, there was no Jewish community left in Jerusalem to speak of. 70 years after that destruction, 70 years after Jerusalem fell, Cyrus becomes the king of Persia. Persia had replaced the Babylonians. So now Cyrus is the emperor of the world, essentially. And he gave permission for a few Jewish people, a remnant, about 50,000 of them, to return to Jerusalem and to begin to rebuild the city. Now that's what we've been studying for the last six weeks when we've been talking about Zerubbabel, Mordecai, and Esther. Those people went back to Jerusalem and they began to rebuild the temple. They, they began to rebuild the city to some degree. They began to rebuild their community there. But you know what? It wasn't an easy task and it, and it didn't come together um, quickly. In, in fact, for more than 50 years, a half century, Jerusalem and its people just were fledgling. I mean, they, they, they were there. They were present in the land, but they were surrounded by adversaries. They were constantly oppressed. They were uh, forever being harassed. They were not living in any way with victory and with, with a joy They were not a vibrant or healthy or thriving community until Nehemiah and Ezra. And when Nehemiah and Ezra came and worked together, they led the way in establishing this strong and robust and thriving Jewish community. In fact, it is because, really, It is because of the work of Nehemiah and Ezra that Israel became this thriving Jewish community again and it was into that thriving Jewish community that Jesus the Messiah would ultimately arrive just a few centuries later. And so it's safe to say that were it not for the work of Ezra and Nehemiah, there would have been no Jerusalem for Jesus to have come to. And had there been no Jerusalem for Jesus to come to, then God's redemptive work in the world could not have been accomplished. He had to have, in order for his work to be done in the world, God had to have a thriving Jewish community in Jerusalem. Now, if y'all are tracking with me, I want you to let me know it by shouting amen. amen. Now, listen carefully. In the same way that God had to have a thriving and healthy Jewish community for his work to be done 2,500 2, years ago. In the same way, he must have a thriving and healthy Christian community in order for his work to be carried out in the world today. In fact, I would propose two fundamental truths to you today. The first one is simply to say that as believers, we grow and we remain strong. We grow and remain strong when we work together to build a strong Christian community. That is that we are able to to bear up under the pressures of life. We're able to bear up under the burdens of this life. We are seven strong. We are strong when we work together to build strong Christian community. Or in other words, when we build a strong church, then we can be strong. And the second fundamental truth that I would add to that, and in fact, it's really kind of the flip side of the same coin, it is that when believers build a strong church, That community or that church in turn sustains and builds even stronger believers. And so these two truths go together. I can't be strong without a strong church. And a strong church enables me to remain strong. And so what is our part in building a strong church? That's the question for today and we're going to learn it. From Nehemiah. It is the fifth of these seven qualities that we must have in order to be strong. Write it down. It is the essential quality of duty. Duty. Today, we're going to talk, as we learn from Nehemiah's life, we're going to talk about our shared duty to build a strong Christian community, or in other words, to build a strong church. All right, so Nehemiah chapter 1 is our text. I'm going to read, uh, you follow along, we'll just read the whole chapter. There are 11 verses. Nehemiah chapter 1 and verse 1. These are the words of Nehemiah, the son of Hacaliah. And it came to pass in the month of Shizlu, in the 20th year as I was in Shushan, the palace, that Hanani, one of my brethren, came, he and certain men from Judah, from Jerusalem, And I asked them concerning the Jews that had escaped, which were left of the captivity, and concerning Jerusalem. And they said unto me, the remnant that are left of the captivity there in the province are in great affliction and reproach. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down, and the gates thereof are burned with fire. And it came to pass when I heard these words that I sat down and wept. And mourned certain days and fasted and prayed before the God of heaven. And I said, I beseech thee, O Lord God of heaven, the great and awesome or terrible God, it means awesome God, that keeps covenant and mercy for them that love him and observe his commandments. Let thine ear now be attentive and thine eyes open that you may hear the prayer of your servant, which I pray before thee now day and night, and and for the children of Israel, thy servants, and confess the sins of the children of Israel, which we have sinned against thee. Both I and my father's house have sinned. We have dealt very corruptly against thee, and we have not kept the commandments nor the statutes nor the judgments which you have commanded your servant Moses. Remember, he prays, remember I beseech thee, The word that you commanded your servant Moses, saying, If you transgress, I will scatter you abroad among the nations. But if you turn to me and keep my commandments and do them, even though there were of you those who had cast to the uttermost parts of the heaven, yet will I gather them from there and will bring them unto the place that I have chosen to set my name there. Now these are thy servants and thy people whom you have redeemed by your great power and by your strong hand. O Lord, I beseech thee, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and to the prayer of your servants who desire to fear your name and prosper, I pray thee, thy servant this day and grant me mercy in the sight of this man. Now, the man he's referring to, as we'll see, is King Artaxerxes. Grant me mercy in the sight of the king. Verse 11 ends by saying, For I was the king's cup bearer. Now, we're gonna learn about our duty, as exemplified by Nehemiah, to fulfill our duty in building a strong Christian community. But bef- before we do that, as we're just beginning, and laying a foundation, let me begin by helping you see an obvious outline of chapter one. Let's have a brief homiletics course, would that be okay? Sometimes maybe you look at a chapter in scripture and you say, if I were teaching a class or I were talking to somebody about what this passage is saying, how would I do that? The process by which you would know how to uh, explain what's in that passage is called homiletics. So I'm gonna give you a homiletics class. If you're good for school for just a couple of minutes, would you say amen? Okay, most of you are, so we're going to go for it, all right? If you were to outline uh, Nehemiah chapter 1, you would begin with Roman numeral 1, and you would call the first section of the chapter the problem. It's that simple. You have in chapter number 1 the problem, and it's described in verses 1, 2, and 3. Nehemiah is visited by his brother, uh, Hanani. He and some others come from Jerusalem to Susa, the capital of the Persian Empire. They come to visit Nehemiah. His obvious and very reasonable question is, hey, how's everything going up in Jerusalem? Praise God that Zerubbabel was able to go and rebuild the temple. Praise God that our people are returning. How's it going? That's his question. And he gets his answer. And the answer that he gets from his brother and his friends and verses 2 and 3 is, well, it's, it's not good. In fact, things are pretty bad. Verse number uh, 3. They said unto me, the remnant that are left of the captivity there in the province are in great affliction. Great affliction. Now the word affliction here means they are in great distress. A word that we could use, it means the word calamity. They are enduring a great calamity, or they are suffering harm, or they are in misery. Here's a way to say it. It is an unmitigated disaster. That's how it is in Jerusalem. It's a mess, Nehemiah. It's a mess. He goes on to say, not only are they living under great affliction, but they are suffering, verse number three says, great reproach. Now you know what reproach is. When you speak a reproach about somebody, it's to mock them or to scorn them. It means to be held in contempt or to be disgraced. So Nehemiah says, tell me how things are going. I can't wait to hear the news. Remember, this is the days before internet. He can't Google it. How are things in Jerusalem? He's not getting the morning newspaper to tell him how it's going. He has no word from Jerusalem until Hananiah and his friends show up. He says, tell me how they're doing. They say, it's a disaster. It's terrible. And not only is it terrible for the people that are living there, but it's terrible for the name of God because they're being mocked and scorned in Jerusalem. And then they go on to tell him why they are living in great affliction and why they are being mocked and scorned. What is the reason for these circumstances? Look at verse number three at the end of the verse. It is because the wall of Jerusalem is still broken down and the gates have still been burned with fire and they have not been rebuilt. So here's the problem. The city of Jerusalem had no... Protection. In those days, you had no way of protecting yourself from an enemy unless you just put a wall up around your city. And so, all uh, cities of any sort, any size or significance in the ancient world were surrounded by great walls. And those walls provided protection. And the only way to get into the city was through the gates. But the problem in Jerusalem is the walls aren't there, the walls are laying in piles of rubble, and the gates have been burned with fire. And No gates meant that all of the adversaries and the oppressors living around them could run roughshod over them, could just come in and do night raids or whatever they wanted. They were harassing the the men. They were abusing the women. They were terrifying the children. It meant that they had no protection from their enemies and it meant that there were no enclosures to keep the people in. It's a problem. That's the first division. The second division in your outline would then uh, rightly be titled, The Prayer. There's a problem, so we need to pray. Everybody listen, when you have a problem, what do you do first? (laughs) Now what you ought to do is pray. Very often we have a problem and then we do everything that we can do and then when nothing works we say, well at least I can pray. And we use prayer as a last resort. It's kind of like the father on Christmas Eve, putting together the toys, and he needs the instructions. But no dad uh, reads the instructions. We just put it together. And then when it doesn't work, we read the instructions. So we ought to, when we have a problem, we ought to pray, right? And so Nehemiah does that. His response is to pray. It begins in verse number four. As soon as I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for many Days. His prayer goes through verse number 11, and it provides us with a beautiful model of prayer. You have the model prayer in the New Testament. That's the Lord's Prayer. Here you have a model prayer in the Old Testament. It's a good way for us to pray. Let me show you the four elements of his prayer. You're going to have to write fast. They're not going to be on the screen. Real quickly, in his prayer, he began with praise. That's in verse number five. He began with praise. Oh, God, you are great and awesome. I wonder how often we pray that way when we're in trouble. When the problem comes, do we begin our prayer with praise? We should, because my problems do not change the greatness of God. Amen? He's great in any case. And so I should say, God, you are great. You are awesome. You are powerful. That's where he begins. He then moves to gratitude or what I would call worship. He says in verse number five, you are not only great and awesome, He says in verse 5, but you keep covenant, and you are a God of mercy. I've told you before the word mercy, the Hebrew word here is hesed. It means your loving kindness is forever. It's never ending. And by the way, if God truly is a mighty, awesome God, then we should be grateful that he is also good and merciful. Amen. Can you imagine an all-powerful God who was not also exceedingly merciful? then we would be in trouble. So he says, God, you are awesome, and God, you are good. The third part of his prayer was a prayer of repentance. Now, that's important because he didn't come saying, God, look at, look, at, um, look at how perfect we've been, and we've still got these troubles. No, he said, God, you know, we're broken. We've failed to keep your commandments. We've made mistakes, and this is the humble attitude with which we should always pray. And then the fourth part of his prayer was proactive That is, that as he was praying, he was making a plan. You see this in verse number 11, when he says, Prosper, I pray thee, this day, uh, thy servant, grant him mercy in the sight of this man. So before he even finishes praying, he already knows what he's going to do. I think that's the best way to pray. Don't just pray and sit still, pray and move. And say, God, now bless me as I go. Bless me as I take a step forward. And if this is not the step I should take, then stop me as I go. But, God, I'm asking you to help me. We pray, and then we do what God leads us to do. So there's the second division. So we're outlining the first chapter. There's the problem, then there's the prayer. Here's the third and final part of our outline. It's what I would call the plan. And we're going to get into chapter 2 for the plan, first five verses of chapter 2. you got the problem, you got the prayer. And then you got the plan. Uh, Follow along as I read chapter 2, verse 1. And it came to pass in the month of Nisan, in the twentieth year of Artaxerxes the king, that wine was before him. And I took up the wine and gave it to him. Now chapter 1 ended by telling us, I was the king's cup bearer. It means I am the king, or I was the king's wine steward. Very high position in the palace. Very important position. A position of great trust And confidence, because oftentimes if a king were to be assassinated, how would that assassination happen? By poison. And so it was the king's cupbearer who would guard, who would oversee the security of the food pantries and the wine cellars. He was responsible for the safety of the king. And oftentimes it would be the wine steward, the cupbearer, who, when he brings wine to the king, would be required to drink from the bottle first, to guarantee that it was safe for the king. So very high and very important position. And so he says, on the, in this uh, uh, month of Nisan, the 20th year of Artaxerxes the king, I came before him bringing wine. Well, verse number one says, "Now I had not been ever, I had never before been sad. In his presence, you should know when you go in before the king of the world, the monarch of the great Persian Empire, you don't go in droopy and sad and kind of sulking your way in. No, you have to come. You have to put your problems aside. You have, the kings had court jesters because they wanted only happiness in their in their palace. They wanted only happy people with no problems coming before them. Don't be a downer on my day if I'm the king. And so Nehemiah comes in and he's sad. And he'd never done that before. And the king said, Nehemiah, what's up? Why are you sad? This is verse two. Well, he didn't say what's up. But he says, why are you sad? Why is your countess so sad? Seeing you're not sick, this is nothing but sorrow of heart. And I was afraid. And he should have been afraid. It was illegal to go into the king with a sad face. Verse three, he said to the king, let the king live forever. Why should I not be sad? Why should my countenance not be sad when the city, the place of my father's Graves lies waste, and the gates thereof are consumed with fire. Everybody look up here. That's the most dangerous sentence Nehemiah ever spoke in his life. (laughs) Not because it has a hint of sarcasm, which it seems to in the translation. I don't think it had a hint of sarcasm. The reason it was a dangerous statement is because, guess who is the one who had put all of the stop orders on the Jews building anything in Jerusalem? Jerusalem. It was the king. And so when Nehemiah comes in and says, well, why shouldn't I be sad? My city's just lying there in ruins. He's essentially saying, I'm sad because of what you have done. So the king says, what do you want? What's your request? What are you asking, verse 4? So I'm, I love verse 4. The king said to me, for what do you make requests? And so I prayed to the God of heaven. Everybody look up here. If the most powerful person in the world ever says to you, what can I do for you? Pray before you answer. He said, oh, Lord, don't let me mess this up. Verse 5. Well, if it please the king, and if thy servant has found favor in your sight... Give me permission that I could, that you would send me, send me to Judah, to Jerusalem, unto the city of my father's graves, that I may build it. There's the ask. Wow. What a huge ask. Can I have a leave of absence, Your Majesty? Can I go fix the problem that you created, Your Majesty? Can Can I leave the comforts? of the palace, can I leave my easy life and go enter into, what did chapter one, verse three and four say? Go enter into the great distress and the affliction and the reproach and the despair and the calamity. Can I leave my comfortable life and go build up God's people? And here's the question. Why would he do it? Why would Nehemiah leave his comfort and go to build up the walls of Jerusalem? And the answer can only come in one word. He knew that it was his duty to do it. Nehemiah felt duty bound that because the people of God were suffering and the city of God was lying in ruins, that he felt duty bound that he had to do something about it. You know what duty is, don't you? You know what the word duty means? Write it down. Here's the definition. It's really simple. Duty is a moral or legal obligation. I love this word obligation. A duty is an obligation. A duty is not something you do maybe if it works out, maybe if it's convenient. No, a duty is an obligation. Obviously, Nehemiah had no legal obligation to leave Susa and to go to Jerusalem and to begin to rebuild those walls, but he did sense a moral obligation to do that. And here's what you need to know that when he arrives in Jerusalem, he presses that duty upon the people of the city. Let me show it to you. Look at chapter 2, verse 11. So I came. To Jerusalem, there he is. He made it. He arrived. The king gave his permission, so he arrives in Jerusalem. I came to Jerusalem. I was there for three days, and I rose in the night. Only a few men were with me. I didn't tell any man what God had put in my heart to do at Jerusalem. There was no beast with me. I didn't take a great cavalry with me. It was just me on my horse and a few others. I went out by night by the gate of the valley, even before the dragon well and the dung port. I viewed the walls. Of Jerusalem, which were broken down and the gates were consumed with fire. Then I went on to the gate of the fountain and the king's pool, but I couldn't get through there. There was no place for the horse to pass. So I went up in the night by the brook and viewed the wall from the Mount of Olives. You could see the whole totality of the wall of Jerusalem from there. I viewed it. I turned back and entered by the gate of the valley and so returned. And The rulers didn't know where I went or what I did. And neither had I yet told any person, none of the Jews, the priests, the nobles, the rulers, or the rest that would do the work. Verse 17, then I said unto them, you see the distress that we are in. Verse 17, he begins to press this duty upon them. You see the distress that we are in and how Jerusalem lieth waste and the gates thereof are burned with fire. Come, let us build up the wall of Jerusalem that we will no longer be a reproach. The duty that he felt in chapter one and the beginning of chapter two, when he arrives in Jerusalem, he presses that duty upon the people. Let me ask you a question. If y'all are listening, say amen. Here's a question. Do you share Nehemiah's sense of duty to build up the people of God, the, the community of faith, he, his Jewish community of faith, your Christian community of faith, your church. Do you share Nehemiah's sense of duty to strengthen your church? Or maybe I should ask a more general question. As a follower of Jesus, does the grace of God, and when I talk about the grace of God, we're talking about the work of Jesus on the cross, his death and resurrection, which has resulted in our forgiveness of sins, our justification from any unrighteousness, our deliverance from judgment, our deliverance from darkness to now walking in the light, our assurance of an eternal life with him in heaven. That is the grace of God. Does the grace of God relieve you of all duty? Or does the grace of God impose upon you? Great duty. By the way, duty is not a Jim Dykes word. It's a Bible word. The word duty is found in the New Testament over 170 times in English translations of the scripture. The, The Greek word is ophelo, ophelo. And here's what it means. It means to owe it or to be in debt for it or to be obligated to it. Fifteen times in your New Testament, that word, ophelo, is translated in the King James, ought, O-U-G-H-T. But it's the same word that's translated duty in other places. So let me give you a few examples. Listen carefully. In John 13, 15, Jesus said these words, you ought, ophelo, you ought to wash one another's feet, or in other words, you ought to serve one another. Translation It is your duty to serve one another, your obligation. Romans 15, verse 1, Paul writes, Strong believers ought, Ophelo, ought to bear the burdens of weaker believers. Translation It is your duty. To support those weaker than you in the faith. Um, how about Ephesians five and twenty-eight? Every husband in the room, listen to me. Ephesians five twenty-eight. So alt, oh So alt, men, to love their wives more than themselves, even loving their wives like Christ loved the church. Gentlemen, it is your duty to love your wife as Christ loved the church. That's just three examples. Three examples where the word translated duty in the Bible is said, this is what you ought to do. It is your duty to do A, B, C. Or see, in fact, Jesus made it an all encompassing reality in Luke 17, verse 10, when he said this So you also, when you have done all that you were commanded, here's what you should say We are unworthy servants or undeserving servants. We have only done what was our, Ophelia, our duty. (laughs) We love this. Jesus said, When you've served God and fulfilled every commandment, do not think you have served God out of the overflow of your generous and benevolent heart. No, he says, when you've done everything you should do, here's the fact. You've done your duty. So let me reask the question. How do you, as a follower of Jesus, feel about duty? Does the grace of God relieve you of all duty or does it impose upon you great duty? Now, Nehemiah points out that any community of faith, it was the Jewish community in his day, it's the Christian community in our day, but any community of faith must be built up by the people within that community, that it is the duty of the people within that community to build it up. Now, You'll notice in the book of Nehemiah, and it applies to us, and I want you to write this down, that he first of all says that we have the duty to guard the honor of God's name. We have the duty to, honor, uh, to guard the honor of God's name. That means that we build up the body when we guard the honor of God's name among us. Chapter 2, verse number 17, after spending the night, he had heard the report from Hananiah and, and his brothers and his friends in chapter 1. How's it going in Jerusalem? It's terrible. It's a disaster. It's a, it's a calamity. He had heard the word. Then he arrives in Jerusalem. He spends the night, several days, in fact, surveying the, the, the walls. He rides up on Mount of Olives, looks. He can see all of the rubble, all the gates burned with fire. It's an unmitigated disaster. The city's completely unprotected. Chapter 2, verse what, 17? Chapter 2, verse number 17. He gathers the people together, presumably the next morning, and he says to them, you see the distress that we are in. Can you imagine that moment? Can you imagine? Nehemiah, this highly placed um, Jewish man, but a highly placed Persian official, standing among all these inhabitants of Jerusalem, amidst amidst all the rubble of the walls and the burned gates, and he says, will you look at this place? This is a disgrace. This is the city of God. We are the people of God. And look at this. And he said to them, it is your duty. Look at it, verse 17. Let us rise up and build so that we will no longer be a reproach. The name of God. The honor of the name of God is dependent upon us fulfilling our duty. That's Nehemiah's word. He says, "This is the city of God. It cannot look like this. Second Chronicles, chapter six and verse six, God said, "I have chosen Jerusalem to set my name there. It is my city." And in fact, Nehemiah references that in chapter one and verse nine, when He prays, "God, we're your servants, and this is your." city. Look at Lamentations 2 and verse number 15. All who pass along the way clap their hands. That is all who pass by Jerusalem clap their hands. They hiss, they wag their heads, they point their fingers at the daughter of Jerusalem and they ask, is this the city that was called the perfection of beauty, the joy of all the earth? Now, Jeremiah is describing Jerusalem in the days of Nehemiah. And he's saying that when people walk by the city of God, they laugh and they go, that's the city of God? What a disgrace that is. And Nehemiah says, can't stay this way. We're responsible for the honor of God's name. Now listen to me carefully. So it is today, the honor, the testimony of the name of Jesus Christ, the strength of the church. The testimony of the church, the power of the church in the days in which we live is the honor of God among this world and it is the responsibility of God's people. It's my duty and yours to make sure that Brookstone Church in this broken and fear-filled world that we're living in, that this church stands as a testimony to the glory of God and the power of God and the work of the gospel of Jesus Christ. You're responsible and I'm responsible. He says that it is our duty to guard the honor of God's name. And then secondly, he says... That it is our duty to seek the welfare of God's people. How do, we, how do we seek the honor of God's name, guard the honor of God's name, by building up the people of God? so that the church will be strong? When we, the, the fundamental truth I gave you at the beginning, when we work together to build a strong community, that community then sustains and ensures that we remain strong. We need to seek the welfare of one another. Look at chapter two, verse number 10. He says in that verse, when Sanballat, now this is when he arrives, by the way. He arrives in Jerusalem. When Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah the servant, the Ammonite, these are enemies of Israel, when they heard of it, it grieved them exceedingly that there was come a man to seek the welfare of the children of Israel. The entire reason that Nehemiah left left Susa and went to Jerusalem was to build up God's people. And he says to them in chapter 4, If you look in chapter 4, verses 13 and 14, he challenged them to rise up and work, and he says, fight and work for your brothers, your sons, your daughters, your wives, and your kindred. It is the duty of every Christian at Brookstone Church, listen to me carefully, it is the duty of every Christian at Brookstone Church to Serve and build up every other believer and the ministries and the witness and the testimony and the work of the gospel through this church so that it will be strong and the name of God will receive glory. If y'all understand, say amen. It's our duty. We are not simply recipients of God's grace, we are agents of His work, we are soldiers in His army. He said, Well, Pastor, how do we do that? Let me just apply it quickly and we'll be dismissed. How do we do that? Last week I mentioned to you the four fundamentals of a Christian church, the four fundamentals of doing the work of the church. Let me remind you of them. how How do I fulfill my duty to build up the people of God and guard the name of God? Number one, pray. Let me just say it. It is your duty to pray. If it is not your practice, if it is not your discipline to pray, for Brookstone Church, to pray for one another, to pray for those in your life group, to pray for those on your pastoral staff, to pray for your church as a whole. You are being deficient in your duty. Chapter 1, verse 6, I am praying, he says, for your people, your servants. Loved ones, it is your duty to pray for one another. I call you to it. Secondly, it is our duty that we would work for the welfare of God's people and for the honor of his name. We work. This is what he says in chapter 2, verse number 18, or verse 17. Let us rise up and build. And verse number 18 says, so the people strengthen their hands for this good work. That's how we build up the church. We serve. We work. So many of you do it. But if you're not currently serving or looking for an opportunity to serve or praying about your next place of service or even just resting momentarily until you begin to serve again, if you're not currently in a posture of serving, hear your pastor. You are shirking your duty to the work of the gospel in this community of faith. We pray. And we work. Number three, we give. I love chapter seven. We won't take the time to read it now. You can turn later and read it. But in chapter seven, Nehemiah details how that God's people gave faithfully and generously so that the temple could be rebuilt, the walls could be uh, restored, and the city could be reconstructed. They gave. It's the way that we embrace our duty. We give. So many of you do, faithfully, faithfully. Generously, even sacrificially, and I thank God for you. But let me just say it I love you, but it is my duty to say it to you. If this is your church, which is engaged in the work of the gospel of Jesus Christ in this world, to advance his name in this world, and if you participate in and you receive the ministry of this church every single week, and you do not give, Stewardship, faithfully, regularly, tithes and offerings into this church. You are shirking your duty as a part of this church. It is your duty. And then, number four, we share. That is, we share the gospel, we invite. We let people know what God is doing here. We invite them to be a part of it. This was the whole point of the temple being rebuilt and the city being restored and the walls being rebuilt so that Jerusalem would stand on Mount Moriah to the glory of God, to the fame of his name. And this is what Brookstone stands for, it's the reason we stand on this hill so that we might go off of this hill and share the gospel, and that every time we come back, we might bring somebody with us that they might hear the good news of the gospel. It is our duty to be about the work of evangelism and bringing people. And here's what I believe. I believe And I believe this in the context of what's happening in our world and what I see happening in so many churches. Here's what I believe. I'm convinced that God wants to multiply the impact and the reach of Brookstone Church tenfold in this very season in which we're living. But why would he do it if we are shirking our duty with regard to what he has already entrusted to us? We give, we share, we work. We pray and we do not do it because we are extremely generous and benevolent and super Christians. We do it because it's our duty having been brought from death to life. Now, to close, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to look straight into the camera and I want to talk to those of you who are watching from home today and I want you to I wish you were here to look deeply into my eyes and hear my heart, but I'm going to speak very honestly to all of you and with much humility. You know, COVID, COVID has revealed some things about us as a nation. It has. It's exposed some weaknesses. It's identified some strengths. It's helped us to change in some places as a country where we needed to change. But it has not only exposed some things about us as a country, it has exposed some things about God's church as well. And they're not all good. Some of them are, but they're not all good. And so what I say to you now, I say with the utmost of of love and humility, and it is that there are hundreds of you who have not returned to church yet. Now, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds have, praise God. But it's not a few dozen who haven't. It's hundreds. And I'm convinced that of all of those folks who have have not returned to church because of COVID, that that group falls into one of two categories, and I'm painting with a broad brush, but one of two primary categories. One of those categories are those that are truly health compromised, truly in danger if COVID were to, uh, if they were to become sick with the virus. Now, let me be clear. I am not a medical expert. I don't even play a doctor on TV. I'm the last person to give you medical advice. I would never presume to do that And you should follow um, wise counsel from medical professionals. But here's what I would say. Let me give you a couple of facts. Today is our 22nd Sunday back in church since we were allowed to regather. 22 weeks. It's almost six months. And in 22 Sundays of assembling for worship, there has not been one case of COVID that has resulted. Not one. Now that's the protection of God. And you should clap about that. And we pray for God's protection every single day. And God is protecting this church. Now, let me be clear. He is under no obligation to do that. It doesn't mean that somebody wouldn't contract it tomorrow. I don't know. Here's what I know. We're asking for his protection, and in nearly six months of gathering back, not one case has occurred, and we are in the hands of God. We trust him. 22 weeks, not one case. Now, I'm completely qualified to tell you what I just told you. I'm a little less qualified to say what I'm getting ready to say, but these numbers are factual. And it is that the overwhelming majority of people who do get the COVID virus, and I know it's different based on age and comorbidities, but generally speaking, on average, those who, are, who do contract COVID, the high 90s, 98, 99 even percent of them recover fully. Now, I give you those facts to ask a question. It is not an accusatory question. I presume nothing. It's an honest question. If your church has met for six months almost with no cases and of people who might get the case, 98, 99% of them recover fully, at what point will you feel safe returning? Is it seven months with no cases? Eight? A year? Is it 100% recovery? You have to ask the question, at what point do I say, God is obviously watching over my church, my church is doing a great work, people are recovering, I'm going to make a decision based on what I know to be true. Now, again, I'm not giving medical advice. I'm simply saying you should ask the question. If if, if y'all understand my heart here, would you say amen? Amen. Amen. So that's the first group that, that have not returned, those who just truly have true medical issues or live with a parent or a grandparent and have to deal with those questions. There's a second group though. This is the bigger group. And that are those of you who, I love you, but here's the truth, you're making excuses. And here's what you've discovered in six months of staying home on Sunday mornings and tuning in online. It's easy. It's a whole lot easier. And so you don't have to serve anybody and you don't have to get dressed. And you don't have to, to, to come and participate, and and it's just easy. And here's what I know is true: that for many of you in this category, you go everywhere else. You go to restaurants and you go to work every day and you go to ball games and you go shopping, but you don't come to church. And I'm saying as your pastor. It is my duty to tell you that God has called you to his work in this world in a fully participatory way in his body. And I'm challenging you to hear his convictions, convicting spirit this morning. There's an important work to be done. You need to be participating in it. In Nehemiah chapter 2, verse number 10, Nehemiah says, God put it on my heart to go and seek the welfare of these people. That's verse 12. Chapter 2, verse number 18, they strengthened their hands and they worked uh, with all their heart. Chapter 4, verse 6, they had a mind to work. They put their hearts into it. These are the greatest days of gospel opportunity that Brookstone Church has ever known. And we are enjoying great blessing as a church right now as well. But I believe God wants to do immeasurably more than he's doing. And in order for that to happen... God's people must embrace their duty. You want to be strong? Do your duty.